Would you pray with me uh, one more time? Lord, we ask that you would speak now. Uh, God, that you would speak through your word, uh, that you would point us to your son, Jesus, that you do all of this in the power of the spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You can grab a seat and do me a favor. Turn in your Bible to the gospel of John chapter one. We will be in verses six through to 14 this evening. I mentioned this at the beginning of service, but if you're just joining us a little bit later, uh, you may or may not know that we have begun a series walking through John's gospel that is going to last the better part of next year, but I will not make any promises. Uh, We may or may not go into 2020. We'll see what happens. Every time I put a deadline on the end of a series, the series goes like six months longer than I expected. So no promises, 2019 for sure. And then we'll see after that. And the reason why we're going through John uh, is because we're trying to develop this rhythm as a ministry where we alternate between the Old and New Testaments. Uh, You'll know that this past year we walked through 1 Kings, this uh, pretty significant and often ignored part of the Old Testament. And so in light of what we've done this year, next year we want to look to the New and see how everything that is promised in the Old Testament finds its fullness in Christ. And so we have turned our attention to John's gospel. It is one of the most beloved parts of the New Testament. It's one of, uh, for many people, their favorite gospels. Historically, that's been the case as well. Christians have loved John's gospel. And it's not without good reason. John's gospel has some of the most famous parts in the life of Christ in it. It has his miracle of turning water into wine, which is something that many people know about. Uh, It's got Jesus' confrontation with the Samaritan woman at the well as he talks about what worship is, that true worship that honors the Father is worship that's offered in spirit and in truth. It's got some of the most popular passages in the Bible too. The the one that everybody has memorized, Jesus wept, like the shortest verse in the Bible. Uh, When I was a kid and went to private school, I had to memorize Bible verses to, to do well in Bible class, and that was like the freebie where I knew I didn't have to work to memorize that one. It's got really like the patron verse of Super Bowl games, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world and you can fill in the rest. But John is not just loved because it's familiar. It is familiar. If you've grown up around the church, you've heard a lot from John. But John is loved because it is a book that even a few sentences in you realize he is dealing with realities that are at the very edge of what human beings can understand. Like he is at the very edge of something that is so far beyond our ability to comprehend. I mentioned this last week, but Chrysostom, the great preacher in the early church, said that John writes like somebody who just left heaven and wrote down what he saw. This is probably why in Christian art from the early centuries onward, John's gospel has always been represented by an eagle. Uh, Maybe you've been to like an old-fashioned church with stained glass windows and paintings on the walls Uh, But if you go, you'll notice in many of these churches that the Gospels are represented by animals. And so there's an ox, and there's a lion, and there's an eagle, there's a human being, and they represent the four Gospels. And the reason why the eagle was chosen for John was that in the ancient world, people believed that eagles could stare into the sun without going blind. That is not biologically true uh, for people or eagles. So I would not suggest that you attempt that. But you can see why, even if that's not biologically true, it seems like it's spiritually true with John. He writes like somebody who's seen heaven and wants us to see what he's seen. Uh, We mentioned at the beginning of the service, and Corey mentioned last week as he led us in the Lord's Supper, that we're also in the season of Advent. Maybe that's unfamiliar to you. 
The early church recognized that if Jesus is who we think he is, then nothing escapes the scope of his authority, including time itself. And so this this thing called the Christian calendar developed, where every season is marked by an event in Jesus' life that we remember as we pass through that season. And Advent is this time that the church has given to reflecting on the fact that from the promise of a Messiah in Genesis 3 to the birth of Jesus, there was a lot of waiting that God's people had to do. God didn't make a promise and fulfill it immediately. We're talking about generations upon generations, trusting that God's promise for deliverance would come true. And so Advent is this time before Christmas in which we reflect on the fact that God's people waited for a long time for the first coming of Christ. And we on this side of his death and resurrection are waiting now again for his return. And so we've been walking through Advent through the lens of the first chapter of the Gospel of John because John recognizes that the story of Jesus doesn't begin in a manger. It doesn't begin when uh, these shepherds heard an announcement from an angel. It doesn't begin in anything that you heard from Charlie Brown's Christmas story, as wonderful as that film is. But John recognizes that, properly speaking, the story of Jesus has no beginning, that Christ is eternal but in time took on flesh. So we walked through last week, uh, John's opening where he describes Jesus as the word of God through whom, by whom, for whom all things were made in him. There is life and light, truth and beauty and goodness. But tonight John steps out of eternity and into history. He lowers his gaze from heaven and he fixes it on earth. And so we come to our text It says this in verse six, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So John moves from what we talked about last week, this this time and eternity past. He moves into history. And he says, there was a man sent from God. His name was John. Now, this could get really confusing because there is John the author. We'll call him John the evangelist. And then there is John the Baptist, which is who he's talking about here, uh, which might actually be why John doesn't name himself in this book. He's, he's worried that people are going to get confused by the multiple Johns. So John here is talking about John the Baptist, and he says that he was sent as a witness to the light. He was not the light himself. John the Baptist is a really fascinating figure in the Bible. Like what we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke is that John the Baptist is the sort of person that people would have been really freaked out by if he like showed up in church. Uh, he, he wears this garment made out of camel's hair. I don't know if he like skinned the camel himself or he bought it from one of like the fashionable places in Jerusalem. Uh, We're told that he eats locusts and wild honey. Even back then, that wasn't normal. That was kind of weird. And we're told also that, I mean, in in many ways, he sounds like he spends most of his life in the desert. He's like the Ron Swanson of like Second Temple Judaism. But, But when he does come out of the desert, he's kind of confrontational. Like he's, he's preaching at one point and the Pharisees who were these corrupt religious leaders in Jesus's day show up to hear what he has to say. And he just stops the sermon and starts yelling at them. 
He's like, who told you to show up here? You snakes, you brood of vipers, which would probably get me in a lot of trouble if I did that in the middle of a sermon. But John doesn't seem to care. He just goes for it. He, he is the sort of person who I feel like if he showed up to our service tonight, uh, would sit on the back row with like a leather satchel full of dried bugs that he's eating. And anytime I said anything wrong, he would make it abundantly clear. Like he would just be yelling at me from the back row. Heresy, that's heresy. Not that I make a habit of speaking heresy, but if I accidentally did, John would let everybody know. But look at what John, the author of the gospel says about John the Baptist, specifically that his job was to bear witness about the light. John's job is to testify to someone other than himself, not to call attention to himself in spite of how attention grabbing a camel skin gown might look. Uh, This phrase, the light, is used throughout this gospel to describe Jesus. And that's not some sort of like a lovey-dovey way of depicting Jesus. It's not used to describe the way that Jesus makes you feel inside, warm and fuzzy, like a ray of sunshine. It's not used to describe Jesus' temperament, like he's perpetually happy all the time. He's a sunny person. Actually, I think what John means when he describes Jesus as the light is actually both positive and negative. Uh, There's something profoundly negative about this description, and there's also something maybe more encouraging about it. The College and Career Office, which you might have seen from our really cool Christmas card invite, is, I think, really well decorated. Like, I am proud of our office. Uh, What we did when Corey and I kind of got moved into the same uh, portion of the office spaces is we decided that the fluorescent lights in there were unacceptable and not nearly cool enough. And so we spent more than a lot of money on these really cool Edison bulb light fixtures. And so I think our office is awesome and really impressive and very refined looking. But every once in a while I walk in and I'm not paying attention and I flip on the wrong light switch. Uh, I don't flip on the cool Edison bulb fixtures. I, I flip on the really ugly fluorescent lights. And I'm always like absolutely horrified by what I see. Horrified not because our office doesn't look great and really well decorated. Horrified because when the lights come on, I see how desperately I need to dust all the bookshelves. And I see all of the coffee stains on the floor around where I normally sit. And I I see all of the places where the paint was not applied very evenly in my office. I see everything that's wrong with it in the fullness of the light that's hidden by the darkness. When, when real light, like fluorescent light, appears and not cool, like warm Edison bulb glow, all of the mistakes that I'm able to hide in the darkness become really apparent. And this is one of the reasons why John chooses to describe Jesus as light. Because there's something about Christ's presence reveals what we could otherwise hide apart from it. It it convicts us of our sin and our shortcomings and our failures and our brokenness. We see all of the dust and coffee stains, all of the chips in the paint. We see all of it when we come into the presence of Christ because in him there is light. But there's also probably a more positive reason why this picture is used to describe Jesus as well. Because light doesn't just reveal what's wrong. It doesn't just show us what's broken or or fractured, but it also points us to what is true and safe and good. 
probably two months ago, me and my brother decided that we were going to go camping. Our, our family was doing this vacation trip to North Carolina. And right around North Carolina, it sort of borders another state. There's this part of the Appalachian Trail that we really love called Rowan Mountain. And off of Rowan Mountain is this campground. It's not even a campground. It's just the side of a mountain that we camp at. So I guess we've made it a campground. And anytime we have the chance, we'll spend a night up there on the mountain. And so we did our research. I made sure that we brought everything that we needed with us, checked the weather on the iPhone app, and it said there might be a little bit of rain the morning after, but nothing to be worried about. And so we, we get there early in the morning. We spend five hours hiking to this specific spot, set up camp, gather firewood, do all the things that you're supposed to do if you want to survive a night in the woods. And then this guy comes walking down the trail. He doesn't have a backpack on, so he's obviously not staying the night on the mountain. And he says, are you guys just going to like ride out the storm up here? And there's no reception on this mountain. So all I have to go off of is what he just said to me. And I said, uh, excuse me, what storm? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, that hurricane just passed through like a week ago. And I guess there's a couple like bands of it that have broken off that are supposed to pass over the mountain tonight. But you guys should be fine. Like it's coming from the east. You're camped out on the west side of the mountain. Uh, and we had actually camped out like in the side of the mountain, like in a cleft of the rock. It was very like Mount Sinai, Book of Exodus-esque. <laughs> And he's like, you're, you're in the cleft of the rock on the opposite side from which the storm is coming. You'll be totally fine. And so we trust our friend who we met on the trail two minutes prior. And we trust all of his uh, meteorological predictions. And so we go to bed when the sun goes down, which is like 8 or 9 o'clock at night. And then around 10 or 11 o'clock at night, we find out that he either lied to us because he wanted us to die up there. <laughs> Or he was just gravely mistaken because the storm has come from the side of the mountain that we are camped on. So we are pinned against the side of the mountain by this band from this storm. And it's not a terrible storm. Like if you're sitting in your car, it would have been fine. But cars and tents are constructed of very different material. And it became very apparent 15 minutes into this event because I wake up to the sound of our rainfly being ripped off of our tent. And it's, it's hanging on by like a thread. And if the thread breaks, it goes over the side of the mountain. So uh, I wake up, and then I immediately realize that we're not in Seminole Heights or Ybor City anymore because there's no lights. Like, I wake up, and I'm not sure if my eyes are open or not because it's totally dark. But I can hear the rain fly, and, and I can vaguely see this shadow just, like, flapping about in the wind. So the first thing I do is reach for the flashlight, which I can't find because I'm sitting on it. And so then I ask Justin <laughs> where his flashlight is. And... He's more responsible than I am, and he hands me the flashlight. Here's, here's why. Uh, if I had unzipped that tent and walked out in the darkness, there was probably a 90 to 95% chance I would have walked off the edge of a cliff because there's total darkness. I can't see which way I should go, uh, which way is best. I can't see which way will keep me alive and which way is a pretty far drop. But the light reveals that which is true, that which is right, and which way I ought to go. And so when John describes Jesus as light, he means both of these things. One, that Jesus reveals and convicts our sin, all of the, the dust and the coffee stains and all of the, all of the darkness in our life. When Christ enters into it, he reveals these things that we need to repent of. But at the same time, he also, like this flashlight on Rowan Mountain, guides us and directs us towards truth and life and safety. So let me just say this. I, I have no doubt that there are people in this room who would claim to know Jesus. And, and maybe even to the best of your ability, you feel like you know Jesus 
But can I just say that if in your encounters with Jesus, you have never been convicted of sin and felt the need to repent, if you have never heard his voice through the scriptures, through the church, through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, guiding you towards truth and righteousness, if none of these things have happened, you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. Like the idea of Christ being light is not just a helpful description. That is who he is. By virtue of his presence, this is what he does. He reveals, he directs, he guides. John's job is to bear witness to that. But the author of the gospel, John, goes on, and he says this, that he was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 10 is probably one of the most tragic things written in the gospel of John, because he's already said that through the word, everything was made. It was all made through him and by him and for him. And yet as he steps into creation, the very creation that has come from him and exists for him now rejects him. Even as he continues to sustain it, it rejects him. This is, this is the great irony of Jesus' trial when he's in front of Pontius Pilate because what Pilate will say in John's gospel is, you know that I have the power to kill you, right? And the very tongue that is forming these words only continues to exist because Jesus continues to allow it to exist. It's this profound irony that he comes to the world that only exists because he says so and the world says we want nothing to do with you, even as it exists because he allows it to. But then John turns the corner. He says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that might strike you as odd. If everything we've said is true, if everything the Bible says is true, if we are as sinful as scripture would imply, if we're as, as wicked as the Bible talks about, if, if we have like so many people that we'll see in John's gospel rejected Christ, how do we move from that to becoming sons and daughters of God? What gives us that right? How does God accomplish something like that, taking enemies and making them sons and daughters? Uh, the answer to that question is verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, if you grew up in the church, this is like the Christmas verse next to the, next to the, the angels visiting the shepherds and the wise men who weren't actually there on the night of Jesus' birth. They came three years later. Uh, or the manger scene. These are your Christmas verses. Or maybe you haven't grown up in church, but you've been to church on Christmas and you've heard this passage. And, and what I'm afraid of is that if you've grown up hearing this, you don't feel the full weight of John 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is perhaps one of the most profound things ever written by a human being. In the early church, uh, there was a, a figure named Junius. Junius the Younger is how he's referred to. I don't know who Junius the Older was. But Junius the Younger was raised by a Christian father. I don't know what his mother's convictions were, but he spent the early part of his life running as far as he could from Christianity. 
His father never stopped praying for him, never stopped hoping that he would come to Christ. And so one of the things his father did was that he noticed that Junius would go through the library in the house and he would pull books off of a specific shelf and, and read them in his spare time. And so his, his dad took a copy of the Gospel of John and he put it in among all of the other books of philosophy, hoping that his son would just sort of pull it off of the shelf and read it, not knowing what it was. And so one day, Junius pulls the Gospel of John off of the shelf, and he read chapter 1 of John. He didn't read anything past chapter 1. But here's how he describes this experience. He says, I read part of the first chapter, and I was so affected that I instantly became struck with the divinity of the argument, the majesty and authority of the author's writing. My mind was in amazement. I barely knew who I was anymore. What, what is it about John chapter one that shatters this man? Like he says, I barely knew who I was anymore after I read John chapter one. This, for so many of us, this verse is just something that we pass over, but it is actually the reason why we can be, be given the right to become sons and daughters of God, what John says in verses 12 and 13. Here's why that is. Um, this is really important for you to understand one of these central things in, in Christian theology, this idea of the incarnation, the word becoming flesh. I think for many of us, we think Jesus just kind of looked human. He was like vaguely human in some sense, but in most senses, he was superhuman. He was kind of like, I don't know, like an X-Men or something where he's like, he looks human, but he's definitely not, not really. But the historic confession of the church, what Christians have always believed is when we say that the word became flesh, what we mean by that is that the eternal word of God took onto himself, united himself to every single thing that makes a human being a human being. He doesn't just seem vaguely human. He is fully and really and truly human. Jesus passed through the embryonic stages of development. Jesus was born physically. That's not a metaphor. Jesus grew up and skinned his knees playing with his friends. When he was an adult, Jesus owned a house and he paid taxes and he had a job and he had to make money. He didn't just turn his rocks around his house into bread when he got hungry. He had to do everything that was necessary. Everything that comes with being human, he took on himself when the word became flesh. And by uniting himself to our nature, he gives to us what belongs to him. Well, let me explain what I mean here. Um, one of the flights that I took at some point this year, I did what I always do on flights, which is that I go to the movies and I watch the romantic comedies. And, and I, I do this because what's better than crying next to a stranger on an airplane? There's nothing better than that. And so on one of these flights, I'm going through the rom-coms and I found this movie that looked like it would be deeply moving and encouraging and exciting. And I don't even remember what it was, but I turned it on and it basically followed the story of these two grad students, uh, this guy and this girl who fall in love with each other. But the girl is from the United Kingdom and she's in the States on a student visa. And she does something in, in the course of the movie, probably about halfway through, to get her visa revoked. And she's actually banned from the United States for like 10 years. And so the rest of the movie is, is them sort of navigating how to have this relationship while they're in separate countries. And at one point, the guy goes over to visit her in the United Kingdom. And he's having a conversation with their parents. And they're like, you know, this is so terrible. 
Uh, we can try and hire a lawyer to, to appeal this decision, but you know what would actually solve this whole problem? Like you all could be together. She could come back to the United States is if you all just got married. Because if you got married, your rights as a U.S. citizen would become her rights. Uh, she would become a citizen by virtue of being united to you in marriage. What belongs to you would become hers. We understand this sort of inherently in our society. Uh, Like your rights don't become the rights of the person you're dating because dating is possibly temporary unless it ends in marriage. But when you unite yourself to somebody, when you commit your life to somebody in marriage, what belongs to you becomes theirs. And so when we say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, what we are saying and what, what the Greek here literally implies is that it is a continuous, ongoing, and eternal action. That the word of God unites himself to our humanity and that will not cease throughout eternity. The word was made flesh never to be made anything else again. He has married himself to our humanity. And so what is his becomes ours. When the son of God becomes man. He shares with us his rights. Chrysostomum, the great preacher of the early church said, God's son became a son of man in order to make the sons of men, children of God. This is why we can call God father because Jesus has shared his sonship with us by becoming flesh to dwell among us. Everything changes based on this verse. But there's more here that you, you may not see in the English. The, the, the literal rendering of John 14 is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's not like a verb that we would use. Like when I was talking to my brother about camping, I wasn't like, hey, do you want to go tabernacle on Rowan Mountain? You would have had no idea what I was talking about. But if you've grown up in, in and around the church, you, you might know this, that the word uh, tabernacle actually describes this tent that would sit at the middle of the ancient Israel, Israeli camp. This was the place where the commandments of God, the 10 commandments of Moses were stored. This was the place where the Ark of the covenant was. This was the place where people would offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. And this was also the place where the presence of God dwelt in the midst of the people of Israel. So John takes that and he says, Jesus, Jesus is all of that. Jesus is the fullness of the law of God. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sins. Jesus is the place in which the fullness of the presence of God now dwells. Jesus is the tabernacle. What he says ultimately is this, that when the word became flesh, took upon himself the fullness of human nature, God's presence no longer dwelt on earth in a building like the temple or on a mountain like Sinai. It dwells in a person and that person's name is Jesus. Dorothy Sayers, the great uh, Roman Catholic essayist, as she's writing on this particular verse, she says, you can call it insane. You can call it unconvincing, but you cannot call it boring. It is the single most important thing that has ever happened in history. She actually says, it may be the only thing that's really happened in history. It is the only thing that has happened that has ever really mattered. That the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, that the son of God became a son of man so that by his death, we might call God father. We take communion here as a ministry every week. And one of the things that I appreciate about coming to the table every week is that you get to hold in your hand bread. And I say wine, it's grape juice. We're Baptist. You get to hold in your hand, these tangible things, these, these physical reminders of these physical realities that took place. Like un- understand now, as we get ready to come to the communion table, uh, Jesus took on flesh that was as real as the wafer that you'll hold in your hand. Jesus shed blood that was as real as the grape juice that will be in your cup. This is not a metaphor. This is reality. And that's what we remember. And that's what we encounter as we come to the table. Now, let me pray for us and we'll move into this time of communion. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you that in your providence, in your kindness, in your compassion for us, Uh, We who had set our face against you, you sent Christ to take on flesh, to dwell among us and to share with with us what is his, that we might call you father and we might be sons and daughters of you. Lord, as we come to communion now, uh, remind us uh, that, that these things are as real as the elements that we hold in our hands. We ask that you would do all of this in Jesus's name and we say, amen.